A.W. Tozer said that the highest service any of us can render is to speak to God on behalf of men. And the next highest form of service is to speak to men on behalf of God. And I hope we understand that those are not two forms of service reserved for elite Christians. We are all called to fulfill those two highest forms of service, praying for others and proclaiming the gospel to others. But you know, sometimes we get our own preconceived notion about how those two things are to be accomplished. And some of us think that the only place to pray is in a church pew in front of a stained glass window. And some of us think that the only place a person can be saved is by walking down the center aisle of a church. But you know, one of the things that is evident about God is that He loves diversity. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Paul says, His ways are unfathomable. God has more ways than we can even count. And if we took the time this morning to have each of you come up here and tell where and how you were saved, it would be very obvious that God is not boring. He loves diversity. There is one way, Jesus, but the unique ways in which we were brought to Him are as diverse as our fingerprints. And that fact is demonstrated in our passage this morning. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40, take place in one city over the course of just a few days, and yet God worked in the lives of a variety of people in a variety of ways. We will see God work in the life of a businesswoman, a fortune teller, a group of prisoners, and a jailer. One person's life seemed to be going very well. Others are at the end of their rope. One person is religious. Another is demon-possessed. One has plans for the future. Another has plans to kill himself. One has the right answer. Another has the right question. One happens on a peaceful riverbank. Another on a busy city street. One happens in the confines of a prison, another in the comfort of their home. One benefits from deliverance, others benefit from imprisonment. One is impacted by a quiet conversation, another is impacted by an earthquake. God loves diversity. His ways are unfathomable. And that is evident as Paul and his missionary team come to the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Notice verse 11. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following, to Neapolis. Now, you remember in verses 6 to 10 that Paul tried to go south into Asia Minor, and God closed the door. He tried to go north into Bithynia, and God closed the door. And so he went the only direction he could, west, until he came to Troas at the Aegean Sea. And there he had a vision of a man in Macedonia calling for him to come there and help. And so they get into a ship and they sail to Samothrace, an island about halfway across the Aegean Sea. And there they spent the night and then they traveled the remainder of the way to Neapolis, the port city of Philippi. 
Now that trip across the Aegean Sea is about 125 miles. The winds must have been favorable because they did it in two days. Later in Acts chapter 20 and verse 6, they make the reverse journey and it takes them five days. Verse 12, And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Now Philippi is about 10 miles inland from Neapolis. It's named after Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Luke tells us it was a leading city. It was right on the great Roman highway known as the Ignatian Way. He also tells us it was a Roman colony. A Roman colony was kind of a Rome away from Rome. The emperor would take certain Roman citizens and order them to go to certain strategic cities throughout the empire, and they would become very strong pro-Roman cities. And as a result of being willing to do that, there were certain perks and privileges that they got, the most notable of which is that they did not have to pay taxes. Philippi was one of those cities. Now, in the last few chapters, Paul has visited a number of places. Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. Luke simply gave us the names of each of those cities. But when we come to Philippi, we get a little chamber of commerce description. He says it was a leading city of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. Now, why does he give us this extra information? Well, some have suggested that Luke was from Philippi. And so if that's the case, he's describing his hometown. But that's simply conjecture. What we do know is that when Paul and his team left Philippi, Luke stayed behind, which allowed him to become more familiar with this city. To show you that, look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. Verse 12 at the end. And we were staying in the city for some days. Now when they ended their stay in Philippi in chapter 16, the first verse in chapter 17 begins, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Luke stayed behind in Philippi. Why? Well, the only reason that makes any sense was to provide leadership, and pastoral care for this newly planted church there with all kinds of diverse people with all kinds of testimonies. And we're going to get to see four of those testimonies this morning. The first is a businesswoman in verses 13 to 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, it was Paul's custom to go first to the synagogue. This city apparently had such a small number of Jews that they had not formed a synagogue. And when that was the case, they usually met out by the nearest river. That practice goes all the way back to their days in Babylon. Psalm 137.1 begins, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. And the reason they chose a river was probably to perform some of their purification rites that went along with their worship. And so on this occasion, on the Sabbath day, Paul and his companions go outside the city 
to the nearest river, which was about a mile away, and they hope or suppose that they will find a prayer meeting there. And they found a group of women. Now that's interesting. Because the vision Paul had bringing him to Macedonia was a man saying, come over here and help us. The first group he runs into in Macedonia is a group of women. That's also interesting because of Paul's past. Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees didn't bother to teach women. In fact, they had a common prayer that they prayed every day. It was, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. But God had changed all of that in Paul's life. And so he would now say, as he does in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither free nor slave, neither male nor female. And so he sits down on this riverbank and he begins to speak to these women. And one in particular is singled out, verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Lydia was a businesswoman. She sold purple fabric. And purple fabric was rare and very expensive in that day. You remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said the rich man habitually dressed in purple. That was his way of flaunting his wealth. So she dealt with a very affluent clientele. And apparently Lydia was doing pretty well in her business. Because in verse 15 we find that her house was large enough that the whole missionary team could stay there. In verse 40 we find that her house was large enough that the entire church was meeting there. Now she was from Thyatira. That was a place renowned for purple dye that they made from the modder plant. Thyatira is in Asia Minor. It's one of the seven churches that Christ addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And I think it's very interesting how God works because Paul tried to go into Asia Minor and God closed the door. Instead, God leads into Macedonia where the first person to get saved is a person from Asia Minor. And her salvation is described to us in verse 14. And I'd like you to notice that there are three key players in Lydia's salvation. First of all is Lydia. Now, what did she do? Well, she was seeking. And that's evident by two things. Number one, it says she was a worshiper of God. Now, that phrase indicates that she was probably not a Jew and not a Jewish proselyte. She was like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. She had turned from pagan idolatry and she was seeking after the God of Israel. And that's evident because it is the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day was a work day in Gentile Philippi. All of her competitors were out there trying to make a buck. And where is Lydia? She's on the riverside at a prayer meeting. You see, God was already working in her heart, and she was a seeker. And that's evident also by another word in this verse. It says she was listening. Now, it doesn't say that everybody was listening. I'm sure they all heard the words. Lydia was listening. 
And oftentimes the gospel is spoken to crowds, but it has to be listened to by individuals. And on this day, Lydia is listening because she wants to hear the truth of God. She was a seeker. And God said in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There's a second key player in her salvation, and that is Paul. What did he do? Well, in obedience to the Lord, he was speaking. Lydia would have had nothing to listen to if Paul had not been there sharing the gospel. Paul would later write in Romans 10, 14, How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Through all the closed doors and open doors in verses 6 to 10, God was leading Paul to Philippi. And he was obedient. And now here he is, sitting on the side of the river, speaking to the listening heart of Lydia. But then there's a third key player. And this is the keyest player of all. This is the Lord. And what did he do? Well, it says here, the Lord opened her heart. Paul didn't use any clever strategies. Paul didn't try to manipulate anybody. He didn't have to. He simply sat on the riverbank and shared the gospel, and God did the rest. He opened Lydia's heart to respond. And as Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So Lydia was seeking, Paul was speaking, and God was opening her heart. And that's evident when we come to verse 15 because it says, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The reality of Lydia's salvation is demonstrated by two things. Number one is obedience. Immediately after her salvation, she was baptized in obedience to the Lord, probably right there in the river where they were. And the second thing is love. It says Lydia opened her house for the missionaries to stay there. In fact, Luke says she prevailed upon us. Did you ever have anybody prevail upon you? She wouldn't have it any other way. Obedience and love. Which brings us to the second testimony, and that's the testimony of a fortune teller in verses 16 to 18. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Whenever people start to get saved, Satan always shows up to hinder the work. And Paul and his companions were using the riverside as a place to gather each day. And while they were going there, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was possessed by a spirit, and the way that spirit manifested itself was by foretelling the future. So as you can imagine, her masters made a lot of money on her by charging to have her foretell people's future. Now, that's still going on today. You can turn your television on and surf through the channels almost any time of the day, and you're going to come across a 
psychic infomercial. In fact, I looked in the Cape Girardeau yellow pages, and there's a heading, Psychics and Mediums. It's big business. But it's not a game. And on the basis of this scripture, let me tell you that when you open yourself up to this kind of thing, whether it be horoscopes or Ouija boards or psychics, you are opening yourself up to the realm of Satan. Verse 17. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, Paul has never been to this city before. He has not shared the gospel here before. So how does she know that they are bondservants of the Most High God? How does she know that they are proclaiming to people the way of salvation? Well, the same way Legion knew who Jesus was in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus came to the land of the Gerasenes, Legion fell down before him and said, You are Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. How did he know that? Because of the spirits who dwelt within him. There are people who know things that they couldn't know any other way. That's not something to be impressed by. That's something to be alarmed by because that is evidence of a spirit within. Now, what's interesting here is that what this lady was crying out about these missionaries was absolutely true. You say, well, why would Satan want to tell the truth? Why would Satan want to be out in the streets of Philippi giving an advertising campaign for the servants of God? Well, that's always his first tactic, infiltration. He will always try first to join us. You see, if he could appear to be linked with the servants of God, then he could confuse the people of Philippi, and later he could introduce error. Verse 18, And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Now, Paul didn't want this kind of publicity. Jesus didn't either. It says in Mark 1.34, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Paul didn't want this kind of publicity, but he put up with it for several days. You say, well, why did he put up with it for several days? Well, the only answer I can come up with is that he probably knew that casting out this spirit was going to create some big problems in the city of Philippi. And so he wanted to continue to go to the riverside because some good things were happening there. But it says, finally, he became greatly annoyed. That means he was ticked. About what Satan was doing to this young girl and about the way he was disguising himself as an angel of light, and finally he commanded the demon in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. And it says it came out at that very moment. Now, was this girl saved? Well, we don't really know for sure, 
We know that she knew where the answer was because she'd been telling everybody else for several days. And we know that she had experienced the power of God in her life. But other than that, Luke doesn't tell us any more information. Instead, he directs our attention to the reaction of her masters, which brings us to the third testimony in this passage, and that is the prisoners in verses 19 to 25. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Were her masters thrilled about this girl's deliverance? No. They were upset because they had lost their source of profit. That was a similar reaction to the people in the land of the Gerizines. When Jesus cast the demons out of legion, nobody got excited about that. They got upset because their herd of pigs had been lost and they asked Jesus to leave. Only in this case, they don't just ask Paul and Silas to leave. It says they seized them and dragged them to the people's court. They, they took them to the main marketplace where there was a court always set up. And you know, it's evidence to us here that when Satan's first attempt, infiltration, fails, he always goes to plan B, which is persecution. Verse 20. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Now, the accusation is really twofold. Number one, it's a religious accusation. The, Roman, the Romans had a law forbidding Roman citizens from practicing any foreign religion. It was rarely enforced. But on this occasion, they're accusing Paul and Silas of trying to make the Romans worship somebody other than what Rome had authorized. And so that's the first accusation, religious. The second accusation is a racial accusation. They say they are Jews. And anti-Semitism was on the rise at this time in Rome. In fact, when we get to chapter 18 and verse 2, we will be told that Claudius, the emperor, has just banned all Jews from Rome. So it's open season on Jews. And there weren't many Jews in this city, so now they had the opportunity to deal with a couple of them in Paul and Silas, which I think also explains to us why Luke, who was a Gentile, was not apprehended, and why Timothy, who was a half-Gentile, was not apprehended. This was really a racial move to take it out on the Jews. Verse 22, and the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. The magistrates seem to get caught up in the frenzy of the mob. They don't investigate these things. They don't give them the opportunity to defend themselves. Instead, they strip the men and beat them with rods. This is one of the three occasions when Paul was beaten this way, as he describes in 2 Corinthians 11, 25. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Now, I tried to find out what kind of rods they used, and I really couldn't come up with that kind of information. But you know, the Jews had a law that when somebody was beaten, they could only be hit 39 times. The Romans didn't have that kind of law. So they just would have beaten Paul and Silas until the magistrate said that was enough. 
And Luke tells us here they received many blows. And then they were thrown into prison, and verse 24 says, And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This was maximum security. They were thrown into the inner prison, which was probably the carved-out downstairs dungeon of the prison. And they were put into stocks. Some of the books I read said that they would spread their legs as wide as they could be, so it was as uncomfortable as possible when they locked their legs into these stocks. And so here's Paul and Silas in maximum security down in the dungeon, locked up in the stocks. You say, well, that's probably the end of their witness in Philippi. Look at verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I'm not surprised that Paul and Silas are still awake at midnight. I mean, how could they sleep? Their backs have been beaten and bloodied. They're in a filthy dungeon. They're fastened in stocks so they can't roll over, and their, their legs are probably cramping. But instead of complaining, they are praying and singing. They're turning persecution into praise. What do you think they sang? You know, I can tell you what I would be singing. It would be, rescue the perishing. <laughs> Care for the dying. They were probably singing, how great thou art. How can these two missionaries praise God under such conditions? Well, they understood something that a lot of Christians forget, and that is that praising God doesn't depend on circumstances. Paul would later write to this same church in Philippi in Philippians 4.4 and say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, how do you rejoice in the Lord always? How do you rejoice in the Lord? How do you praise God in the midst of painful circumstances? Well, I think there's two main ways. One is you have to understand that God is in control of the circumstances. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. First of all, I have to understand that God is in control of the circumstances. And secondly, I have to let God be in control of me. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy. He produces fruit in me, and that fruit is joy. You see, the problem with sad, miserable Christians is not their circumstances. The problem with sad, miserable Christians is a lack of dependence upon the Spirit of God. And I want you to notice the last phrase in verse 25. It says, the prisoners were listening. Now, these prisoners were used to hearing sounds coming out of that inner prison, but they were used to hearing sounds like cries of pain and cries of agony and cries for help and cursing and swearing. But on this night, they are hearing joyful praises. And just like Lydia on the riverbank 
they were listening. Which brings us to the fourth testimony in this passage. That's the jailer in verses 26 to 34. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. God sent an angel to deliver Peter from prison in Acts chapter 12. Here he uses an earthquake. He controls both the supernatural and the natural. Someone has said that their singing was so good it brought down the house. This was a great earthquake. It says it shook the very foundations of the prison. But it was also a unique earthquake because it opened doors and it unfastened chains. Verse 27, And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The, the penalty for allowing a prisoner to escape was death. And so the jailer, assuming that they were gone, thought he would end his own life rather than go through the humiliation and pain of an execution. Verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Out of the dark prison came this voice shouting out, Don't do that, we're all here. Now, how come all the prisoners were still there? You know, some people say it's because they were so stunned and confused by the earthquake that they couldn't find their way out of the prison in the dark. And others say it's because they were afraid of getting captured. Well, they were already captured. The only thing that makes sense to me is that they were so impacted by the reality of the witness of Paul and Silas that they said, we're going to go wherever these guys go. And perhaps Paul even turned to them and said, you guys stay here. And they said, okay. Verse 29. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. They brought lights in, lit up the prison, and he came in, and here is, is quite a picture. The jailer is on his knees before the prisoners. Verse 30, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, where did that question come from? Well, apparently, he heard either in person or secondhand what the demon-possessed girl was shouting in the streets of Philippi, that these are servants of the Most High God and they are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And now having experienced the earthquake and having looked into the face of death, there was only one question that he wanted an answer to, what do I have to do to be saved? And the answer comes in verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Now, I love the simplicity of that answer. You ask the greatest theologian the church has ever known a question, and you would expect to get a complicated answer. But there's nothing complicated about the gospel. Paul simply says, Believe on the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in Him 
and you shall be saved. And then that last phrase in verse 31, and your household. Now that doesn't mean if the jailer got saved, his household automatically got saved. Every sinner has to personally accept Jesus Christ. You don't get saved by proxy. What Paul is saying here is simply this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and the same goes for your household. And that's evident when we come to the next verse, verse 32, where it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Why did he speak to all of them? Because they all had to individually respond to the gospel. And that's even more clear when you slide down to the end of verse 34 and it says, having believed in God with his whole household. Each one believed. And then notice the evidences of salvation. The first is love, verse 33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Here's this tough, crusty, cruel jailer washing the wounds of Paul and Silas with great compassion. What happened? Salvation. The first evidence is love. The second evidence is baptism, the end of verse 33. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. The third evidence is hospitality, verse 34. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. And the fourth evidence is joy, it says, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. That's the joy of the Lord. He wasn't rejoicing because his life had been spared. He wasn't rejoicing because the prisoners were still there. He was rejoicing because he and his entire family had been saved. That's real joy. And then we see the conclusion beginning in verse 35. And when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. Now you've got to realize that this fellow, this jailer, was saved after midnight. And then they had a baptism, and then they're back at his house having pie and coffee and fellowshipping. So we've got to figure this is the wee hours of the morning, but what happened in the wee hours of the morning is the jailer took them back to jail and locked them in their cell. And then when daytime came, the magistrates decided they didn't have a case against these guys, so they sent their policemen to set them free. Verse 36, And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore come out and go in peace. He was probably excited. He goes in and says, They're going to let you go. Come out and go. Paul's response, verse 38, and the policemen reported these words to the... I'm sorry, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. Paul says, they beat us publicly. They're not going to send us away privately. And then he plays his trump card. He says, we are Roman citizens. And notice the response to that, verse 38. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. The magistrates knew they were in trouble because they had in inflicted corporal punishment on a citizen without a trial. So they scamper down to the jailhouse 
and say, please come out, please leave our city. It's quite a scene. You say, well, why is Paul standing up for his rights at this point? Well, he's not doing it for personal reasons. If personal reasons was the motive, then when they first got the rods out to beat him, he would have been crying, I'm a Roman citizen, stop. But he didn't do that. See, he doesn't bring it up until now. And why does he bring it up now? I think it's for the sake of that little fledgling church in Philippi. Because you see, if Paul and Silas just leave quietly out of the city, then the magistrates will think that's the way we'll deal with Christians in the future. Paul puts his foot down, says, we're Roman citizens, we want you to come and escort us, beg us to leave. That creates a barrier of protection for the church in Philippi. You see, Paul was a pastor, and he cared about that little church, and he did this to protect them. And that's even more apparent when we come to verse 40. And it says, And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Please leave our city. Paul says, We will, but first we'll go to the house of Lydia because we want to encourage the brethren before we leave. And what an interesting group that was. A businesswoman saved through a quiet conversation at a prayer meeting. I think a slave girl who had been delivered from a demon. Prisoners impacted by Paul and Silas's songs in the night. And a jailer reached through a dramatic earthquake. It reminds us that while there is one way, Jesus, no one comes in exactly the same way. And so let's be challenged this morning by Paul and Silas to take every opportunity to speak to God on behalf of men and to speak to men on behalf of God. There is nothing more exciting than to hear somebody give their unique testimony and to find out that you were a key player in bringing them to know the Lord. We're going to close this morning by singing hymn number 198. I'm going to ask that you stand as we sing it. However God may have spoken to your heart this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond by coming forward. Hymn number 198.